Now, you know what nobody likes? Nobody likes a backseat driver, right? Nobody likes one of those. Those, those that drive, you know exactly what I'm saying. You know, some of you are so critical about other people's driving, right? You're, you're driving too fast or you're driving too slow. Pick it up a little bit. Easy on the brakes. What's the rush, right? Or why did you take this street? This street is better. Or listen, the tunnel was way better than the bridge. Why did you do that? Why did you go this way? Or what about the temperature of the car, right? Oh my, it's too cold. Turn the heat up. My God, it's cold outside. What's the matter with you? Or it's too hot. Crack open the window, right? Some of you are very critical backseat drivers, but I don't think that that's all too serious of an offense. I, I don't think. I don't think it's that big of a deal. I don't think anyone has been too hurt by the criticism of a backseat driver. Like, I don't think lifelong friends have ever split up because of it. I don't think, I don't think a married couple will list it on the divorce papers, right, on the way to divorce court because of their backseat driving. However, actual criticism can have very real consequences and do major damage to friends to relationships, to families, and even marriages. Uh, I'm going to be a little vulnerable right now and share with you guys because I remember a time in my youth when I received some very, very negative criticism. Um, it was it was early on, you know, when me and Melissa were still going out at the time, and uh, we were super young. And I just remember uh, the emotions that this that this criticism had, you know, on me, and it even had on her as well. It hurt real deep, it cut real deep, it was just something that, you know, to this day, it's something that I remember and conjures up emotions. One of her relatives one day uh, pulled her to the side and asked her, they asked Melissa, why are you with that guy? He's so bitter, he's so sour, you can do way better than him. And those were the words they gave her. And I just remember, of course, they didn't say it in front of me, but I asked her, what's going on, what was that conversation about? And man, that criticism hurt so bad. It cut real, real deep. You know, guys, our words are very, very powerful. And if we're not careful, you know, with those very same words, we can do a lot of damage. Have you ever received some cutting words, words that hurt you so much uh, that maybe it even began to brew bitterness inside of you or rage or anger or resentment? How about this? Can you think to a time when you use a cutting remark or you use some cutting words or you use some critical words on someone else? You know, I know this about you, <coughs> excuse me, because it's true of me too. Oftentimes, the people we hurt the most with those words of criticism are the people that we care for the most. The people that we really love. Those are the ones that we end up hurting the most. I want you guys to look at what Paul wrote in his letter to the church in Galatia in regards to our words and criticism. It says this in Galatians chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. You have it there in your notes and it's on the screen. It says this, For the whole law can be summed up in this one command. And what is that command? You guys can read that part. Ready? Go. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you are always biting and devouring one another, watch out. Beware of what? Was it beware of destroying one another? Did you ever think of your criticism being able to destroy someone? But that's exactly what it does. It creates a barrier and destroys intimacy. When we should actually be, according to this verse, loving our neighbor as ourselves. But what if our what if your critical words were destroying intimacy in your marriage? 
What if your critical and harsh words were building a wall between you and your kids or your nieces and your nephews or other family? What if your critical words were keeping you distanced from your friends? What if, what if your critical words were damaging your ability to witness to your lost family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, friends in school? What if those critical words did damage to your ability to share the gospel with someone else? Of course, the opposite is also true. If our, if our critical words can tear someone down, then what can good, encouraging, and affirming words do, right? It can lift someone up. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Look at what it says. I would love for you guys to read it out loud with me. You ready? It's there. It's in your notes as well. It's on the screen. Ready? Read it out loud. Ready? Go. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up That it may benefit those who listen. Would you guys underline the part where it says building others up? And, and also underline where it says that it may benefit those who listen. <clears throat> Paul says that the right words can build others up. And it brings benefits to those that listen. Your words can lift someone up. And it can encourage them. It can bring comfort. It can motivate. It can even inspire someone. You know, one of the pastors that I look up to the most, he's actually a personal mentor of mine. He passes the church in the Lower East Side. His name is Taylor Field. He passes the church in the Lower East Side, uh, and he's one of the greatest encouragers that I know. And, uh, and I'm very blessed to call him a friend and a, and a personal mentor of mine. And one day we sat in his office, right, for one of our meetings. And he tells me this. He tells me these words. He says, well, Danny, let me just tell you, I'm so proud of you. Look at how the Lord is using you and Melissa. It hasn't been easy. It's been a roller coaster, but you're sticking through it. Way to go. God has given you some amazing qualities, and you're the man for the job. Can you imagine how that would make me feel, hearing those words? If you received those words, how would it make you feel? It's amazing. And then, to top it off, he has this box. And he has this little coffee table where we sit at. And he says all these words, and he says, you know, Danny, you deserve this. And he picks up that, it's a little wooden box that sits on his desk. He says, Danny, I'm so proud of you. And he opens it up, and, and what it has, it has a recording of a round of applause. And he goes, <sighs> way to go. And then he closes it and puts it back on. Man, that inspires you. That'll motivate you, that'll encourage you. And when it comes to how we use our words, you know, there's two kinds of people. Which one are you? How do you use your words? I've invited Hunter to help us unpack this uh, a little bit. And as we welcome him up here, uh, I want you to write this down in your notes. Which one do you want to be? Which one do you identify yourselves? The first person is this. Are you a fault finder? Are you a fault finder? So just as we unpack what these two types of people we're going to talk about today are, I'm going to read this verse. It'll be on the screen. Actually, let's read it together. We're just reading it together today. Some here we go. Proverbs 12:18. Read it out loud. Some people make cutting remarks, but the words of the wise bring healing. So some people make cutting remarks, but the words of the wise bring healing. And this verse really speaks uh, to the fact that there are two people. You can see that in the verse, um, and the way we speak and our actions and our words um, show two responses and, and two ways to use our words. Um, and the first is a fault finder. If you're a fault finder, um, you're going to be more like the first person in the first beginning of the verse. So isn't it true that we can be so critical and find something wrong in everything? Who, anybody uh, have a trouble finding 
trouble in anything and something wrong in anything? No. We found it very easy. Uh, and it's kind of like it's our knee-jerk reaction. Like, first thing we see, it's never like, oh, what's the good thing in that? It's always just like, oh, well, that sucks. That's bad. That's, that's awful. Um, for example, like, who likes going to the movies? Okay. Uh, I, I used to go a lot when I was back home because it used to be like $6 to go, but here it's about $30 just to get the ticket. So I don't go that much. But uh, what's the first thing we do when we walk out of the movies? We're like, we're, oh, I didn't like that. We're just automatically giving our opinion about it. Um, I know for me, I'm like, oh, the storyline was this, this acting was that, it was okay. And so that's what we do. We just immediately start giving our opinion, um, like we're some kind of like critic, you know, somebody's going to be reading our Facebook post about the movie. But that's our knee-jerk reaction. Maybe it's not the movies for you. Maybe it's the restaurant you, you pay good money for. You, what's the first thing the waitress asks you? Hey, how was everything? Boom. They want your opinion. And we, we lie. We're like, oh, it's so good. And then we get into the car. Nope. We're, we're complaining, oh, this is awful. We're never going back there. Um, so that's, that's being a fault finder. We're finding faults in things, and that's little things. But what about bigger things in our lives? Um, don't we do the same thing in our relationships, at our jobs, on social media? It's easy to be critical of our husband or our wife. It's easy to find anything and everything wrong with our friends or our family. And we aren't afraid to tell people either, are we? Um, I think Facebook, honestly, and, and social media is a feeding ground for those of us who find it really easy to be critical. Um, and if we aren't careful, careful, we'll find ourselves just slipping down the slope of criticism on Facebook. Even if we don't, we're not necessarily typing it up, what's going through our, our minds when we're seeing these things? Oh, that she's got, you know, whatever, you name it. So the, the verse says, um, there's, a, there's another version that says, the words of the reckless pierce like a sword. That's another version of that verse you read. The words of the reckless pierce like a sword. And this means that our words definitely have power. And even things that we may think, oh, that's not mean, that, doesn't, that won't crush anyone, they're, they're hurtful. And we, we are carrying around a sword with our words, whether we know it or not. Uh, I remember about two years ago, uh, I was having dinner, or have, I was doing something with a group of friends, and I was like, oh, I got a bail, guys. And I was like, and they're like, oh, where are you going? And I was just trying to, jo I was joking around. I was like, oh, well, I'm going, I got a hot date to go to. And they're like, what? And then they just said something, which it was so little, but they were just like, oh, yeah, right, you ain't ever going to find anyone. And like in the moment, they were joking. It was obviously I knew that, but what they didn't know is in that season of my life, I was really struggling with loneliness and with uh, the fear of not finding someone. And so, words cut like Dan like Danny spoke. Words do cut, and so you never know what people are going through. And so, even something you think is not a big deal could be a big deal for someone. Um, so why then the question is why is it so easy for us to be fault finders? We have to ask ourselves why are we so critical. Um, and as I was thinking about that for myself, um, we have to acknowledge that we are sinful, messed up people. We live in a, in a broken world. Um, we're not perfect. I don't think anyone in this room would say that. And so our actions and our, and, our, and our words are a result of that sinful, broken place that we live in. I think for me, criticism comes so easily because of my own pride, uh, my own thinking that I'm somehow better or superior to anyone. And, and we none of us say this. None of us say we're... We're better than everyone, but our actions and our words sometimes suggest that. Um, I sometimes think I know everything, and I'm right. Everyone else has it wrong. Um, maybe for you it's insecurity where that criticism comes out. Are you insecure? Uh, if you can point out the fault in others just long enough for them not to look at, our, at yours, like that's, that's a big deal. Um, ultimately, our lack of empathy and understanding of others, I think, is where the root of that criticism comes from. Um, but if we take a moment to realize just how far Jesus has brought us and what he's done in our own lives, how 
messed up we were and how much he's done for us, um, I think we can become more like the second type of person that we're going to talk about today, which is number two in your notes, a hope dealer. Uh, number two is a hope dealer. And no, I, I know you're thinking it's a dope dealer. I, we're not, I said hope with an H. I know we're in Bushwick, but uh, hope dealer. Um, so let's read this verse on the screen. It's Romans 15, 13. I've been waiting for that joke, guys, so long. I've been telling everybody about it. Um, this is Romans 15, 13. It says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So in that verse, Paul is calling us. He's writing to them saying, Overflow with hope. Um, this means that, what, what does it mean to overflow? That means we have to be filled with something to overflow with it, right? We have to be filled with something to overflow. So where are we getting our hope? Um, where are we overflowing from? Is it, uh, are we putting our hope in anything that's other than God? Um, because if so, maybe our criticism will come from that. Um, but if we're being filled with the Holy Spirit and we're being filled with the God of hope, perhaps we will begin to overflow with that hope. Um, the Bible has a lot to say about God being a God of hope, and he's in the business of dealing hope. Over and over again in stories of the Bible, you'll see, just, if you just read one story, you'll find that God is always entering into people's mess and bringing hope. Um, even when he had every right to leave them in their mess, people, we were messed up people. He didn't, why would he bring us uh, hope? He, you know, he doesn't need us, but he does that uh, because he loves us, and he is a hope dealer. Um, Paul calls Jesus our living hope means he's active in dealing hope. Um, have you ever found yourself like in a situation where you knew if something doesn't change, you're stuck, you're hopeless, like you need help? Um, a small example is um, in high school, um, I had just, I really needed to get this certain grade, but I had messed it up myself and I didn't get the grades I needed. So I just like, I just came to the teacher and I was like, laid it all out there. I was like, is there anything I can do to just bring this up? Um, and she didn't have, she didn't have to do anything for me, but she allowed me to retake a test for some partial credit. But it brought my grade up, and then that opportunity allowed me to, to um, bring the grade up. And so that was in that moment, just a small little hope that she gave me. She did that for me. Um, I felt hopeless, and, and in a moment, things changed. And so um, how can you be that kind of hope for someone? That's something small. How about something big? Who in your life needs you to give them hope instead of criticism? Maybe you need to restore some relationships. Maybe... Hope can look like forgiveness. Um, I'm not sure what it is in your life. Maybe your coworker is struggling with some personal problems, and if you just took a moment to listen, um, you could be a tangible expression of the hope of God that overflows in us. Perhaps you need to give yourself hope. A lot of times, pretty down on yourself. Maybe you're going through a season of feeling like you're nobody and you're worthless, so you don't deserve the hope. Um, maybe uh, you need to give yourself hope and from God, right? And we need to be in his word and, and praying and receiving that hope so we can overflow with it. Um, to be a hope dealer is to be a life giver. That's, that's not going to be on the note, but if you want to write that down, to be a hope dealer is to be a life giver. Um, and there's a story in the New Testament of Jesus. We're talking about how do we be tangible expressions of hope. And there's a story in the New Testament of Jesus being a tangible expression of hope to the hopeless. The perfect son of God who ever, had every right to call people, out, call people out in their sin, he chose to give hope instead of condemnation. Uh, and I'll invite Danny back up to just tell that story for us. So in the book of John, we read the story of a woman who was caught red-handed. Uh, she was caught doing something that she was not supposed to do. And the Bible says that she was being unfaithful to her husband. 
The way it words it in the book of John is that she was caught in the act of adultery. And in the New Testament, we read all the time about all the religious leaders uh, in Jesus' day. They were called scribes and Pharisees. And, and these guys were super religious people, and they were self-righteous. And these are the very same people who ambushed this lady. And if you can imagine, if you read the story in the book of John, they dragged her through the streets to Jesus. They spewed words of criticism. They spewed words of judgment to this woman. They embarrassed her. They brought shame to her. And they paraded her around town, walking her towards Jesus. And among the most critical words that they spewed was that she deserved the greatest punishment possible. What she did was a sin, and what she deserved was the greatest punishment possible. And according to the Pharisees and the scribes, they said the letter of the law says she deserves to die. She deserves the death penalty. The words of these religious leaders were riddled with hate and condemnation and criticism and judgment. Can you guys imagine for just a moment, put yourself in her shoes, can you imagine how she must have felt? Can you imagine how she would have been overwhelmed with shame and with guilt, not to mention fear? If the Pharisees would have their way, then her very life would be at stake. But in the middle of all the criticism and all the harsh words, Jesus steps in. But he doesn't step in to confirm their words of criticism. Instead, he comes in and he gives words of life. As the religious leaders surrounded the woman with their self-righteous and pompous attitudes, Jesus speaks and tells them, whoever among you is without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. Whichever one of you religious, pompous, righteous Pharisees and teachers of the law is without sin, go ahead, give her the death penalty. In other words, whoever's perfect here, whoever's without sin, never having made a mistake in your life, go ahead and kill her. Take her life. Give her the death penalty for her error. And the Bible says that at those words, one by one, the religious leaders turned away and left. Not one of them could say that they were without sin or had never made a mistake. Not one. But what's even more amazing is that after they all left, Jesus faces this woman, overwhelmed with shame and guilt, her embarrassed. And Jesus faces her, and with a tender and compassionate, with tender and compassionate words, he asks her a simple question. He says, where are your accusers? Where are your critics? Where are those that judged you? And of course, they were all gone. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus extended tender, loving, and encouraging words to her. Mind you, like, like, uh, like Hunter just finished saying, the only one who could rightly judge her, being perfect and sinless himself, he instead gives her words of compassion and tenderness. Can I ask you guys a question? How are you using your words? Can I suggest that we perhaps make an effort to see the best in people? I know that that can be really difficult to do at times with certain, certain people than others, but this is exactly what God does 
with us. You see, we have a lot more in common with the Pharisees and we have a lot more in common with the adulterous woman, the sinful woman, than we care to admit. Like the Pharisees, we're quick, real quick to point out the flaw in others and to jump you know, and glance over our own faults, right? And like the woman caught in an embarrassing lapse of judgment and poor decision, we too are sinful and we fall incredibly short before the glory of God. But God and His love for you and, he, and me he does not return uh, our criticism and our sinfulness with harshness and judgment. Instead, He responds with the same tenderness and compassion that He did to that woman. God responds to our waywardness with love by sending Jesus to live the perfect and sinless life that we were incapable of living. And then Jesus, out of love, willingly endures the cross to die in our place for our sins. So that through His death, God's wrath and judgment for our sin would be satisfied. Then Jesus conquered the grave, proving that God has power over life, life and death. And in His, resurrection, in His resurrected life, we have the promise that we can have a new life free from the grip of sin, one with hope, one with a future, and one with purpose in Christ. Jesus' work on the cross was complete, and all we need to do according to the Scriptures is put our faith and trust in Christ's power to save. Instead of receiving what we justly deserve, we're met with Christ's radical love and His compassion and welcomed into the family of God. And since we have been met with compassion, guess what, guys? We can share that compassion with one another and with others. Look at what 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11 says. Let's close out by reading this verse together. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. Ready, go. Dear brothers and sisters, I close my letter with these last words. Be joyful. Grow to maturity. Encourage each other, live in harmony and peace. Then the God of love and peace will be with you. What an encouragement for us this morning. Don't just dish out criticism. Why don't we do this? Encourage each other, live in harmony and peace. Then the God of love and peace will be with you. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up here and, uh, and they're going to lead us in one final song. And as they do, I'm going to invite you guys to partake in communion today. And as you, as you do, as you drink the juice and as you uh, eat the bread, remember the, the blood of Jesus poured out for you on the cross for your sins. Remember the body of Jesus broken for you, nails pierced through his hands and feet, and his body placed into a tomb, lifeless, so that in his death we may experience the forgiveness of sin. But as you also partake in communion and as you drink the juice and eat the bread, remember his lifeless body is no longer in the tomb because Jesus rose from the grave conquering Satan's sin and death so that you too can be victorious in your walk. You can experience forgiveness of sin, the promise of eternity with God the Father, but you can also walk in a new life now because Jesus is risen. And so as they lead us in this final song, I'll invite you guys to partake in communion and you can take it at your leisure. Get up and, and, and take it as, as you want whenever you're ready. And I invite you uh, to pray as well. Let's pray. And as we pray, let's ask God to help us in this area that we wouldn't 
that we would grow away from criticism and that we would use our words to build each other up. Let's pray. Lord, we acknowledge the power in our words. And I pray that we might use our words not to criticize or tear others up, but that we might use our words to build up and encourage one another. We praise you, Jesus, that when we deserve God's judgment, we instead are met with his love. I pray that we might return the same grace made available to us to everyone around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.